Greetings, Northlings, and welcome to Haunted Up North, the soothingly supernatural podcast dedicated to the telling of real-life paranormal experiences from the north of the UK. I'm your host, Victoria, the notorious V.I.C., (laughs) who is bringing you something a little bit different on Haunted Up North today. By the way, I just want to apologise for saying soothingly supernatural podcast. At some point, I'm going to completely run out of words to introduce this podcast with. And it's only episode number six, and I'm already scraping the soothingly supernatural out of the podcast barrel. Shut up. Anyway, this something a little bit different is... A theme I've already visited on Haunted Some More over on our Haunted Up North Patreon feed in my Dark Disturbances tier. And I mentioned it in Hun number four when I was regaling you with tales about Britain's most haunted hotel, the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. I promised, or rather threatened, to read a scary Victorian ghost story to keep your (laughs) spines (laughs) a-tingling throughout the post-Christmas New Year period. And today's the day. The glorious day I'm going to make good on that promise. Or threat. I genuinely think January should be celebrated as National Ghost Storytelling Month. I'm speaking as a UK dweller here, as obviously not every country experiences their winter at this particular time of year, but those of you who do experience probably one of our coldest winter periods during the month of January, it's become quite the tradition to huddle round the fireplace, if you have one, telling or reading scary stories throughout the festive season. It's a feeling that connects quite deeply with the themes I touched upon trying to explain in the very first Haunted Up North, when I described that sensation of feeling safe inside a scary situation. The darkness of the winter months can feel incredibly spooky, but if you're nestled up inside your home with a warm blanket, it can feel incredibly exciting when it's particularly atmospheric outside to reinforce that sense of fear. But it's obviously not real fear, it's secure fear, because your imagination's free to run riot, knowing you're not actually part of the scary action in the shivering world outside. You hold up with your blanket, feeling frightened, but ultimately grateful, knowing you're safe and pleasantly sizzling inside. And of course, telling ghost stories. Do you know what I mean? Don't pretend National Ghost Story Month isn't going to be a thing. I just think it'd be a great way to celebrate the loss of everyone's favourite season, Christmas, because I don't know about you, I get a bit sad when Halloween, bonfire night and Christmas are all over. I do like January, I find it haunting, but there isn't anything solid to celebrate after the demise of New Year's Eve. So making January a national ghost storytelling month would give us some sort of post-festive focus, I reckon. Anyway, all of this, all of the above talk, is why I wanted to tell a proper good ghost story. So a proper good ghost story is what you're getting today, whether you like it or not. There are many masters of Victorian ghost storytelling. My favourites, as I've already mentioned on Patreon when I read out Sheridan Le Finu's The Authentic Narrative of the Ghost of a Hand, are Sheridan Le Finu and M.R. James, both 
brilliant supernatural pen people, but today we're going to focus on the master of festive Victorian fear, which is none other than Charles Dickens. Charlie bit my finger. Charlie wrote a book about some Christmas ghosts in 1843. I'm of course referring to A Christmas Carol. Dickens's most famous paranormal narrative. So it seems only fitting to pick a Dickens tale with which to herald the dawn of post-festive National Ghost Storytelling Month. He wrote a few good ghost stories, did Charles, but A Christmas Carol is his most well-known Christmas one. Charles Dickens and Christmas go really rather hand in hand, even though I know it's not actually Christmas now, but to be honest, I don't care. You can't just shut the Christmas off as soon as January rolls around. I refuse to turn that tap off before I'm ready, thank you. And no one, not even Hans Gruber, can make me. Charles Dickens really is the godfather of Christmas, isn't he? Particularly British Christmasness. Because a lot of the nostalgia and traditions we hold dear today, particularly here in the UK, I can't speak for everywhere, obviously, um, a lot of the traditions, well, I hold dear with regards to celebrating the festive season were kind of re-energised back into life by Mr Dickens when the pages of A Christmas Carol were first published. He reminded his fellow Victorians, because, you know, back then, enthusiasm for the season had started to wane at that point, probably due to the high mortality rates and impoverished state of the lower classes. But he did make a good point for those who needed reminding, or educating, as some of us still need reminding and educating, that there is a heart to Christmas that beats as loud as any sleigh bell. Ah... However, it's not a Christmas carol I'll be reading out today, because although I'm loath to plug the Christmas hose, <laughs> as, if, as if that doesn't sound rude, although I'm loath to plug the Christmas hose, hose, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, anyway, it's not a Christmas carol we'll be reading today, it's The Signalman. Yeah. It's a pure paranormal parable. 110% perfecto for a cold and wintry January night. The Signalman, for those of you who aren't already familiar with it, tells the story of a railway signalman working on a lonely stretch of railway line by a dark, damp train tunnel. A signalman or rail signaller, to use a more modern-day term for context, and I'm quoting this directly from Wikipedia now, is... An employee of a railway network who operates the points and signals from a signal box in order to control the movement of trains. Modern technology has reduced the manual labour required per train movement. In many cases, a switch, button or computer command is nowadays used to alter the lie of points and control signals, although many classic mechanical signal boxes still remain in use. Thanks, Wikipedia. I'm relying on Wikipedia quite heavily today, by the way. I'm making no excuses. I surrender fully to the abject shame of it all. So the guy who is our signalman in this spooky narrative is working from his signal box in a very isolated area, controlling the movement and passing of trains, relying on his fellow signalman to alert him of danger by telegraph and alarms. The background of how The Signalman came to be is a very interesting topic of conversation. It 
was first published as part of the Mugby Junction collection in the 1866 Christmas edition of the magazine All the Year Round. Thanks again, Wikipedia. Mugby Junction is a set of short stories by Charles Dickens and collaborators Charles Collins, Amelia B. Edwards, Andrew Halliday and Hesper Stretton. The Signalman itself was thought to be based upon the real-life Clayton Tunnel crash which occurred five years before the story was written, on Sunday the 25th of August 1861. The Clayton Tunnel rail crash occurred five miles from Brighton on the south coast of England and at the time it was the worst accident to have ever happened on the British railway system. What happened was three northbound trains left Brighton Station within a few minutes of each other, but at the southern entrance to Clayton Tunnel, an automatic signal failed to return to danger after the first train had passed, allowing the second train to follow it into the tunnel. The signaller at the south end of the tunnel belatedly waved a red flag in an attempt to stop the second train, but presumed it had not been seen. However, the driver of the second train had briefly glimpsed the flag and stopped his train inside the tunnel. The signaller then misinterpreted a line-clear telegraph message from the signal box at the north end of the tunnel as referring to the second train instead of the first, and signalled the third train into the tunnel. The second and third trains tragically collided in the tunnel with great force, and it sounds absolutely horrific what happened after that. Just warning you all before I continue, don't listen to this bit if you don't want to, (laughs) or have been affected by something similar, or, you know, anything horribly tragic to do with vehicles colliding. The second train was pushed forward and the locomotive of the third train destroyed the guard's van of the second train before smashing into its last carriage. The locomotive of the third train rode up over the carriage roof and smashed its chimney against the tunnel roof before stopping. Like I said, absolutely horrific. 23 people died in this crash, many of which had been in that last carriage where passengers were burnt or scalded to death by the shattered engine. Awful. Tear-jerking stuff, that. Terrible. Poor people. There was a nine-day inquest into the deaths of the 23 fatalities, though the jury did not find any negligence by the two signalmen. However, the assistant station master of Brighton Station was charged with the crime of manslaughter for starting three trains so close together and overworking his employees, but later he was found not guilty at trial. At the risk of sounding disrespectful to the victims, Clayton Tunnel is said to be haunted, so we may dedicate a Patreon paranormal dig to it at some point, so watch this space for more updates on that. So, The Signalman involves a series of three spectral warnings which parallels rather heavily the three trains in the Clayton Tunnel crash, one of which involves the collision of two trains, which is why it's believed Dickens based his story upon this event. However, there was another railway tragedy that affected Dickens personally on June the 9th, 1865, and that was the Staplehurst rail crash, which was a derailment at Staplehurst, Kent, of a train that Dickens himself and also his girlfriend and her mother were actually on. 
The train derailed while crossing a viaduct where a length of track had been removed during engineering works, killing 10 passengers and injuring 40. Dickens and company emerged unscathed, but the experience affected him deeply and he lost his voice for two weeks, and afterwards was extremely nervous of travelling on trains, preferring to use alternative transport wherever he could. Strangely, he died five years afterwards in 1870, to the exact day that this crash took place on the 9th of June, and he reportedly never recovered from what happened. So many parallels with the signalman there, I think you'll find as you listen to this tale, that I feel for me it goes to the very top of Dickinson's list of most meaningful works. It's as though the story, combined with the horror of all that inspired it, is somehow linked to his own impending and inevitable demise. It's a very compelling idea, and extremely haunting, and I think I'll leave you to ponder that idea while I prepare to finally (laughs) narrate the story. If you've still got some fairy lights up, turn them on. Just turn them on, or get them out, or light a candle, preferably in the dark. Or wait until your bedtime before you settle down to listen. Don't expect any fancy voices. I'm not Brian Blessed. It's a two-person narrative, so I'll just do one voice more Yorkshire than the other. (laughs) I hope you enjoy it, and that I do it at least some justice. And that, of course, you find yourselves scintillated, scared, and, most importantly, entertained. The Signalman by Charles Dickens Published in 1866. Hello. Below there. When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with a flag in his hand, filled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came. But instead of looking up, to where I stood on the top of the steep cutting, nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what. But I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed, down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Hello! Below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down and speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him, without pressing him too soon, with a repetition of my idle question. Just then, there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation, and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had forced to draw me down. When such vapour as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me, and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again, and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level, some two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right, and made for that point. 
There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough zigzag descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons, I found the way long enough to give me time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped for a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing nearer to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man, with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as ever I saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky, the perspective one way, only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon. The shorter perspective, in the other direction, terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot, that it had an earthy, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it, that it struck chill to me, as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose. Not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who, being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for, besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth, and looked all about it as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know what it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind, as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face, that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been infection in his mind. In my turn, I stepped back, but in making the action, I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. You look at me, I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I'd seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There, I said. 
Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound. Yes. My good fellow, what should I do there? However, be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am sure I may. His manner cleared, like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness, and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Yes. That was to say, he had had enough responsibility to bear, but exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him, and of actual work, manual labour, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then, was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know it by sight, and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals, and tried a little algebra, but he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him, when on duty, or was to remain in that channel of damp air? And could he never rise into the sunshine between those high stone walls? Why, that depended on times and circumstances. Under some conditions, there would be less upon the line than under others, and the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather, he did choose occasions for getting a little above those lower shadows, but being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraph instrument with its dial facing needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well educated, and I hoped I might say without offence, perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found among large bodies of men, that he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so, more or less, in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed and he lay upon it. It was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed, he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word sir from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door, and display a flag as a train passed, and make some verbal communication to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, 
I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable and remaining silent until what I had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen colour, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out towards the red light near the mouth of the tunnel. On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him which I had remarked, without being able to define when we were so far asunder. Said I, when I rose to leave him, you almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined, in the low voice in which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled. He would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me, and went out at the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said, in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you're at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, but I said no more than, very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Heaven knows, said I. I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. I admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No. He wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night, as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom, with his white light on. I have not called out, I said, when we came close together. May I speak now? By all means, sir. Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that, we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated, and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. 
That mistake? No, that's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved. Violently waved. This way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For God's sake, clear the way. For God's sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, said the man, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out! Look out! And then again, Hello! Below there! I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it, and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away, when it was gone. Into the tunnel, said I. No, I ran on into the tunnel, five hundred yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head, and saw the figures of the measured distance, and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again, faster than I had run in for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me, and I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop of it, and I came down again, and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways. An alarm has been given, is anything wrong? The answer came back, both ways, all well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how this figure must be a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figure's originating in disease of the delicate nerves that minister to the functions of the eye were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction, and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to an imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires. He, who so often passed long winter nights there, alone and watching, but he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened, and within ten hours the dead and wounded were brought along through the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence, calculated deeply to impress his mind. But it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and that they must be taken into account 
in dealing with such a subject. Though to be sure, I must admit, I added, for I thought I saw that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me. Men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. This, he said, again laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with hollow eyes, was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed, and I had recovered from the surprise and shock, when one morning, as the day was breaking, I, standing at the door, looked towards the red light, and saw the spectre again. He stopped with a fixed look at me. Did it cry out? No, no, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No, it leaned against the shaft of the light, with both hands before the face, like this. Once more, I followed his action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above, and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed, nothing came of this. He touched me on the arm with his forefinger, twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed, at a carriage window on my side, what looked like a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver. Stop! He shut off and put his brake on, but the train drifted past here a hundred and fifty yards or more. I ran after it, and as I went along, heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments, and was brought in here and laid down on this floor between us. Involuntarily, I pushed my chair back as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true. Precisely as it happened, so I tell it you. I could think of nothing to say to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long, lamenting wail. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this and judge how my mind is troubled. The spectre came back a week ago. Ever since, it has been there, now and again, by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible, with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of for God's sake, clear the way. Then he went on. I have no peace or rest from it. It calls to me, for many minutes together, in an agonised manner. Below there, look out, look out. It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here, and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I, 
how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to the bell, and if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor any other time, except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the spectre's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that it derives from nothing else, and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it, but I heard it. And did the spectre seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times. He repeated firmly, both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his underlip, as though he was somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. His eyes were prominent and strained, but not very much more so, perhaps, than my own had been when I had directed them earnestly towards the same spot. No, he answered, it is not there. Agreed, said I. We went in again, shut the door, and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such a matter-of-course way so assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. By this time you will fully understand, sir, he said, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the spectre mean? I was not sure, I told him, that I did fully understand. What is its warning against, he said, ruminating, with his eyes on the fire and only by times turning them on me. What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time, after what has gone before. But surely, this is a cruel haunting of me. What can I do? He pulled out his handkerchief, and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on either side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it, he went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message. Danger. Take care. Answer. What danger? Where? Message. Don't know, but for God's sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man, oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. When it first stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress. 
Why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen? Why not tell me how it could be averted, if it could have been averted? When, on its second coming, it hid its face, why not tell me, instead, she is going to die? Let them keep her at home. If it came, on those two occasions, only to show me that its warnings were true, and so to prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signalman on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort, I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post as the night advanced began to make larger demands on his attention and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl. I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how ought I to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking and exact, but how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, still he held a most important trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in those parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down, when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on and half an hour back, and it would then be time to go to my signalman's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man, with his left sleeve across his eyes, 
passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men standing at a short distance to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing, self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come of my leaving the man there, and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. What is the matter? I asked the men. Signalman killed this morning, sir. Not the man belonging to that box. Yes, sir. Not the man I know. You will recognise him, sir, if you knew him, said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising the end of the tarpaulin, for his face is quite composed. How did this happen, I asked, turning from one to another as the hook closed in again. He was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just at broad day. He had struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her and she cut him down. That man drove her and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man, who wore rough dark dress, stepped back to his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming round the curve in the tunnel, sir, he said. I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him with a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him, and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, Below there, look out, look out, for God's sake clear the way. I started. Oh, it was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling to him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last, but it was no use. Without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of its curious circumstances more than on any other, I may, in closing it, point out the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signalman had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind to the gesticulation he had imitated. Ooh, scary stuff. My voice is quite hoarse now. <laughs> that is not just scary, that is mesmerisingly scary. If you enjoyed that tale, and you'd rather watch it rather than hear me <laughs> telling it, 
There is a 1976 BBC adaptation of The Signalman that was adapted by Andrew Davies as the (laughs) BBC sixth annual A Ghost Story for Christmas production, which ran from 1971 to 1978, with a few more of that ilk making their way onto television from 2005 onwards. They're all called A Ghost Story. Christmas. They're all usually adaptations of M.R. James stories, My Hero, as I stated at the start, with one, The Signalman, obviously, being by Charles Dickens, and another three being original screenplays. The last three were directed by Mark Gatiss, another hero of mine. I love them. They've got some great examples of casting. The Signalman stars Denham Elliott, who I have a big soft spot for, especially after he became Marcus in Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade was actually one of his very last films, so it's quite a fitting title. He died in 1992, not long after that. Last Crusade was in 1989. He's got a great way of playing hugely lovable characters and massively sinister ones at the same time. I'm thinking Cowslip off of Watership Down. Obviously. Brilliant actor. If you can, go watch him in The Signalman. It's on iPlayer at the moment, at the time of this recording. Anyway, uh, I think there might be a few more on there too, if you want to have a look and treat yourself to a ghost story for Christmas during National Ghost Storytelling Month, of course. If you liked this version of The Signalman, told through the medium of My Face, Sign up for Patreon to listen to The Authentic Narrative of the Ghost of a Hand by Sheridan Le Fanu. There'll probably be more stories of this kind on there at some points throughout the coming year, though you may have to wait till next winter before I treat you all, or subject you all, to another one on here. I'm going to tiptoe off to sleep now. I hope you're doing the same. Thanks for listening, everyone and for letting us inject a bit of supernatural Victorian soul into your day. I hope you found that ghost to be a good one, and that you were suitably entertained by it. Long live the writings of Charles Dickens and all who haunt them, and may their power forever compel you to never presume that the arrival of January means the end of supernatural festiveness. Because it doesn't. It's National Ghost Storytelling Month. Remember, it was just a story, so please don't have nightmares. Goodbye, and good night, and big kiss from me. Mwah. See you later. Bye! Shut up.